Uh, good afternoon, and thanks for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. Um, because we have a, a number of speakers today, and our first speaker actually is going to have to leave shortly to, to vote on the floor, I'm going to do very, very quick introductions. Um, our first speaker, we're very pleased to have Congressman Scott Garrett. Uh, Congressman Garrett is a uh, Republican from New Jersey, representing New Jersey's 5th Congressional District. Uh, he's one of the leading advocates in Congress for limited government. Um, and he has introduced uh, in, in the previous con uh, Congress a very interesting piece of legislation relevant to today's discussion, uh, which is called the State Act, uh, which I'm sure he'll want to talk about in a little bit more detail, which essentially empowers uh, states instead of uh, the federal government to make transportation decisions. With that, I'll go ahead and th turn things over to Congressman Garrett. Did you, did you all think that, that was a little bit too brief uh, introduction? Um, but thank you for the uh, introduction. That was great. And I uh, appreciate uh, the invitation to be here with you all today. And uh, certainly always appreciate the, uh, uh, the work um, and, and the research uh, that Cato does. And uh, we rely upon it in our uh, offices. So I thank you very much. Thank you all for coming out and uh, spending a little bit of your busy day with us as we uh, – talk about uh, this important topic of uh, transportation. You know, as you know, the, uh, the, uh, the transportation system in this country, the national trans highway system in this country basically came to us where it is today, starting back in the uh, mid-1950s under the Eisenhower administration. And he, that administration had one original purpose for what they were intending the federal government to do, and that was to connect the, by routes as direct as practical the principal metropolitan areas, the cities, the urban areas, the industrial centers to serve for the national defense and also to connect the uh, suitable border points with routes of, uh, uh, of importance. But that system was completed some 20 years ago, and I guess everybody would consider it's a, a huge success is what they were able to do. The interstate makes up only 6 percent, though, of the transportation of uh, between cities when you consider the state and rural highway networks included in that. But they provide 20% of all intercity auto traffic and more than half of all the truck traffic. So despite the, their size, they're doing a great job. But since the system was completed 20 years ago, in 1991, if you think about it, Congress has really become less focused as to where they should be spending their money and what they do with that uh, 18.3 cents in taxes that they collect every year from car drivers, motorists across the country. Consider some of these numbers. For example, since the interstate completion, the number of driver, licensed drivers in this country has increased by 21 percent. The number of cars out there is up around 31 percent. The number of miles driven by everybody is up around 39 percent. So you have all these huge increases that are going on in the system, but at the same time, how much has the road capacity increased in the entire country over that time? Six percent. So we're doing something wrong over these last uh, 20 years. Uh, and that's the reason why we all know that the highways are more congested in this country than they've ever been before. They're in need of repair, they need for reinvestment, and that's why, according to the American Society of Civil Engineers, Americans spend 4.2 billion hours a year, um, probably half of it right here, uh, stuck in traffic uh, at a cost of $72 billion. That's 710, if you figure out what your pay is and what have you and extrapolate it down, it comes down to 700 bucks per person in uh, time. Uh, per motorist. And they also say that because the roads are so congested and because they need so much repair and what have you, there's other costs to it. Uh, there's a significant factor of uh, traffic deaths become because of it. 
poor road conditions cost you when it hurts your car driving around at the cost of uh, $67 billion? What that extrapolates out to you folks, or to me too, is around $333 every year they have to pay because you go through these potholes and that sort of thing. So that's all about um, the cost to us. So with all those problems, you, you would think and I would hope that Congress and the policymakers here in town would begin to refocus their attention um, and change the ways that we've been doing things, which are basically unacceptable. Um, but unfortunately, if you look at the proposals that have been coming out of Washington over the last several years, there's probably not a heck of a lot of hope, um, in, at least in the legislation that we see. But there is one bright side. You know, uh, we have the reauthorization coming up, right? Secretary uh, LaHood has said, however, that he sees the need to uh, kick the can down the road for about 18 months or so. So the upside is we have time, um, hopefully, to uh, try to get some of our ideas um, across. So it's when we consider these things, it's important to understand all that aspect of the poli basically the politics of transportation. And there's various groups that are out there that sort of play in all this, right? One group are the planners, the activists, the environmentalists. And these people, over here on my left hand, would like nothing more to see a rebirth in this country of saying that we should have bigger and larger and higher density uh, urban areas and cities, um, more of a reliance on mass transit, uh, more of a reliance in, say, go buy a bike, uh, more of a reliance of saying just hike or walk to work, um, and, of course, smaller and fewer cars and smaller suburbs as well, and just at the end of the day, just less car drivers in general. Now, the other group is the um, sort of the business groups. You have the Chamber of Commerce, the Trucking Association, civil engineers, construction companies. They look at the uh, problems that we're facing basically as simply a shortfall. We're just not spending enough money uh, in new federal dollars. Um, then there's the other groups a little next to them, I guess, and that's your local constituencies. Those are folks that I have to deal with when I go home at, back at home. They fall into the uh, NIMBY category, I guess you would say. These are all great ideas, new roads, new bridges, and what have you. Just don't build them in my backyard when you're going to try to improve transportation. And finally, there is one other group. I use my, my right hand. That's over here. And those are the folks, maybe I fall closer to this group, in saying, wait a minute now, why is the federal government doing so many of these things in light of the, uh, the poor track record they've had over the last 20 years of truly allocating the dollars in the, um, in the correct uh, manner? Um, I probably, if I think about it, fall into a little bit into each one of those categories to some extent. I mean, to this category over here, I'm not an environmentalist. I'm a conservationist, and I believe in private property rights, so I agree with that aspect of it. Uh, clearly, there is an um, aspect as far as the need for uh, infrastructure uh, repairs, um, but more akin, I'm more akin to this last group on the right to saying that why is it that the federal government has its fingers still to such an extent um, in all this? But if you take a step back and you look at all these groups, the one imperative question you have to realize is that all of these groups basically are working at cross-purposes, and you cannot satisfy each and every one of these groups, and to do so is, is a problem. Um, so that's why when you get into the politics, uh, we see the difficulties and uh, that we've had so far. So it's not hard to see why we've had these problems, and without the interstate highway to construct anywhere, uh, the highway system that we've had and the bills that we've had over the last few years have turned more from the efficiency of the system to pork barrel uh, spending and as many of earmarks that you can add to it. Uh, the most notorious, of course, is the one we all know about, and that is the uh, proverbial bridge to nowhere. 
um, hundreds of millions of dollars for a bridge that uh, people after the fact question. I say after the fact because if you look at the vote on that particular piece of legislation when it went through the House and the Senate, just about everybody um, supported that uh, piece of spending initiative, and it was only after the fact that people began to question why did we have that in there, why did we have 6,373 uh, earmarks. So this time around, we have that chance. Uh, rather than uh, funding state and local projects through the Federal Highway Bill with its history of earmarks and waste and fraud and what have you, I'm proposing, as you indicated, a uh, piece of legislation that uh, I first introduced in 2005. Uh, it's called the State Act, which call, stands for the Surface Transportation and Taxation Equity Act. Our staff is always pretty clever of coming up with um, acronyms for the things. What this bill will do is just three or four points. First and primarily, it will return the responsibility and the obligations dealing with um, both the taxation and the uh, operation and the funding for uh, our roads and bridges and the mass transit back to the states where it should be. Uh, secondly, it will free the states of transportation dollars from uh, federal uh, micromanagement and budgetary pressures. Uh, thirdly, it will allow the folks on the state level, people who are really the best in the know, to be able to make these decisions regarding infrastructure projects and how they will be built and where they'll be built and how they will be financed and uh, how they will be regulated. Uh, fourthly, it will eliminate the current system in which the federal fuel tax is basically collected at the state, sent to Washington, goes through a process there, goes through Congress, and then eventually finds its way eventually back to the states. And finally, it prohibits the federal government from forcing unwanted mandates um, on states by threatening the withholding of federal dollars. So let me just spend about a minute to run through how this will all work. Um, uh, in the states, every state, as you know, has their own gasoline tax from state to state. It differs. Federal tax is around 18.2 cents. Um, past two highway bills have basically accelerated the process where um, now that money comes to Washington, gets collected by the IRS, goes through the regulated procedure here, and gets sent back to it. Um, and it may be good in one sense that it's been accelerated, but at the end of the day, it's still the same problem that you're taking from there, sending here, Washington through Washington's hands, it's coming back. And what it does do, of course, is create a, um, a problem for certain states being donor states and other states being um, donee states. You have states such as Massachusetts and um, um, Pennsylvania who get well over a buck for every dollar that their motorists send to Washington. Then you get states like mine, New Jersey, and other states like Texas, Georgia, and Florida who only get around 90 cents for every dollar back. So this bill, was simply put, will allow states to opt out of the system. And so how would it work for a state like New Jersey if the state legislature in New Jersey decided to go ahead with this? would be like this. Uh, New Jersey has a, um, a tax right now around 14 cents. Um, if New Jersey opted out, they would have to raise their tax by around the 18 cents up to bring the total tax collected in New Jersey to the 32 cents, which is exactly what anybody driving in New Jersey would pay anyway, except some of it's going to Jersey and some of it's going to Washington. Um, once you do that, as far as the New Jersey motorist is concerned, it will be revenue neutral. He won't see his uh, taxes at the pump go up at all. Um, but what it will do is take them out of the system as far as money going to Washington. All the other states, if the other 49 states decided to stay in the system, that's all well and good. The remaining money would still go to Washington and go through the current procedure and uh, would remain unchanged with regard to the formula. New Jersey, though, would have some benefits. Uh, they will be in more control and, and have discretion as to how the dollars would be spent. Uh, local, state, and uh, county and municipal planners, I think, are in a better position to decide where these projects should go. Um, 
So the states would be able to pursue transportation options that they may not be able to pursue right now. Um, if you're in an urbanized area like New Jersey where you want to have a heavy, more heavily emphasis on, tra on transit, it would be up to the state planners to decide to do so, and they could do so. If you're elsewhere in the country where transit is not as important, you can do so as well. Um, and finally, as I said before, you would be removed of the uh, restrictions and impediments that the federal government puts on, the, um, uh, like Davis-Bacon and that sort of thing uh, with regard to the federal government would not necessarily have to apply unless, of course, New Jersey, New Jersey being what it is, uh, they would still, um, New Jersey's legislature would still make sure that that applied. But other states out in the Midwest would probably allow for it to be uh, extracted from the bill. So there would be the benefits as far as control, discretion, um, authority, and also one other aspect of it. You know, one thing that's in the federal bill is around 10 percent, I believe, of all the dollars going out in the transportation funds have to go to what you call enhancement programs. Enhancement programs mean that, um, and that comes out to around um, four or around $3.9 billion, I think, out of all the money. And enhancement programs are, you know, the building of uh, uh, putting flower pots along the road and um, landscaping, historic preservation, hiking trails, river walks and museums and those sort of things. If your state felt that traffic congestion, road improvement, bridge, bridge stability and that, that sort of thing is more important than enhancements, um, right now, your state would be able to uh, direct all the funds to go to what you see as most important um, and allow those things for another day when the economy is in a better state. Where we stand right now, and I'll close on this, and I thank you for your attention, is um, uh, we've had had the bill in, in back in the 05 when the Republicans were the majority. Um, at that time, we were uh, uh, just be at the process of beginning of uh, the thought of beginning a coalition or momentum to move it, and of course, things changed in 06. Um, and now we're into a whole new climate, but I think it's a new political reality out there where people are beginning to realize whether it's in the healthcare field or whether it's in the area of, of, um, of uh, uh, Wall Street and business regulation and the like or a whole host of other areas, Americans are beginning to say, really, does Washington have all the answers for us or do the people back at home in my town, my county, my state, maybe we the ones who should really be deciding these things instead. So maybe we actually are at the opportune time to begin the coalition, to begin the process to say now is the time to rethink the way that we uh, fund our transportation dollars and projects. Thank you so very much again for this opportunity. And I apologize, but I have to get to the floor before votes. And um, But if you want to uh, take any questions, I have a minute to. I have about three minutes. Yes. Um, what is your position on uh, proposal to toll the uh, New Jersey Turnpike and or the uh, Pennsylvania Turnpike? Well, um, yeah, that was a. Uh, proposed several years ago, and then uh, uh, Governor Corzine tried that once once again to um, uh, to fill the budget gaps, as you probably know, that we have in the state of New Jersey. And um, there was never the uh, thought in our state, at least the way we handle it, that that money would go exclusively to the purposes of uh, transportation dollars or transportation projects. It was basically to fill gaps in the rest, rest of the uh, the budget for shortfall, um, which I said is not the way to go. And um, uh, I opposed that at that time. Would you be in favor of it if it did uh, get allocated to transportation? Um, for my particular state, um, I would say no, um, because our, I, I look at our, our state budget in this way, that we have enough um, resources and revenue coming into our state to pay for important um, uh, fundamental projects such as transportation, and that we are wasting those dollars in other areas. And until we get rid of those 
that proverbial waste, fraud, and abuse. We should never be considering about raising another tax on, uh, on the commuting public in our state. Other states I can't speak to that may have a different, um, uh, a different dynamic. Um, I'll add one little caveat. I don't, know where you're, I don't know where you want to go down this road or not. Other states down south, I guess, where they're allowing for the, um, uh, the opportunity for uh, private investments to come in to basically compete with the states um, to allow for uh, creative ways to finance um, transportation projects. I would love to see New Jersey at least begin to consider those things, but I don't think if you know, if you know New Jersey well, um, those things would ever be in the, the d dynamics of trend politics. Okay, sure. Is there anything in your bill that uh, prevents states from shifting the money, the, the states that opt out of the federal system, <coughs> from shifting the additional money that they are now taking in that was previously going to the federal government? Yeah. No, no. That's a good question. No, I mean it's it's um, it's supposed to be going for transportation, and I would think that the um, the actual dynamics of state politics would almost mandate that it would go for um, for transportation. Because again, speaking from the northeast, we're always in a shortfall for transportation dollars. And if you were the governor and saying, "Well, I'm going to take out three cents of this and start using it for fill in the blank," that that would be a pretty heavy lift for any governor or legislature to do. Yeah. Well, with that, I again thank you so very much for your attention. And if we are able to uh, try to begin the process of moving to more creative ideas, boy, I'd be glad to work with anyone here in the room. Thanks again. Thank you very much to Congressman Garrett for those comments. Uh, next up, we have Dr. Sam Staley. Uh, Dr. Staley is the Director of Urban Growth and Land Use Policy at the Reason Foundation. Uh, if you're not familiar with Reason, and hopefully you are, it's a uh, nonprofit think tank uh, advocating free minds and free markets. It's a great organization. Uh, Dr. Staley has authored and co-authored a number of books. Uh, his most recent is Mobility First, A New Vision for Transportation in a Globally Competitive 21st Century. He's also the co-author of uh, The Road More Traveled, Why the Congestion Crisis Matters More Than You Think and What We Can Do About It. Uh, Dr. Staley also uh, teaches graduate and undergraduate urban economics at the uh, department, I'm sorry, the Department of Economics and Finance at the University of Dayton. He holds a BA uh, from Colby College, a uh, master's degree from Wright State, and a PhD from Ohio State University. With that, I'll turn things over to Dr. Staley. Thank you. And thank you to the Cato Institute and Randall for giving me this opportunity to talk to you about transportation reauthorization. Um, as I was preparing my remarks, uh, in preparing uh, for today, uh, one is I had to keep in mind that Randall will be coming, and Randall has published a great policy study out earlier this uh, earlier this week on reauthorization, which I think does an excellent job, a great primer on some of the key issues in reauthorization. So the question was, what was I going to add to this? And there are a couple of things. And as I began thinking about this, and then thinking about when I was giving testimony on transportation reauthorization last year and looking at what has transpired over the last year, it struck me that one of the things we need to do in the, po in the transportation policy community now is sort of recognize that transportation policy is going through an identity crisis right now. And I was looking, thinking about this because a year ago, there was a fair amount of consensus on some key issues on where transportation policy should go. And I'm not talking about Heritage, Cato, Reason getting together over coffee. 
I mean, when I would sit down with groups that are typically considered on the other on sort of the environmental side, there was some rough consensus about where we needed to go with transportation policy. There was a recognition the gas tax was not nearly going to be sufficient to meet our needs. There was a consensus that we had significant shortfalls in the maintenance and operations of our transportation infrastructure. There was a consensus that there was a real lack of vision at the, at the uh, national level, and somehow we needed to do that, and there was, uh, we had to address that. And there was also a consensus we needed to move more toward user fees, a user-based system of funding transportation, as well as focus our efforts more on a performance-based approach to transportation. Now, the interesting thing for me, thinking of watching this, and a lot of what Reason Foundation does is on the state and local level. So, for example, I'm currently working on congestion um, mitigation plans for large, uh, several large cities. And we get involved in the nuts and bolts of this. In other words, how does policy actually work on the local level? What are the kinds of things we need to do? And how does that interact with the, at the national level as well as the local level? But what we've found over the last year is that transportation policy really has almost, as we, as those of us in the transportation community think of it, has almost disappeared off the radar screen. Jim Overstar has been giving valiant efforts to try and keep it on the radar screen, but the fact he has not been able to move key legislation, even though I don't agree with much of it, um, he hasn't been able to move that um, because there are other priorities, is telling about where the transportation policy issue is in the national debate. And this is a – so we've got the Obama administration, which frankly the first – part of the administration has looked at transportation as a jobs program. You know, it's not about transportation, moving people from A to B, and moving them faster and more efficiently, or for that matter, providing more options. It's about what projects are there that you're going to create jobs. Now, I can understand the politics behind that. I, I'm not necessarily critical of the politics of that, but that has some pretty substantial implications for where we are at this point of time in transportation policy. And it's going to be key in the reauthorization process to get regrounded. Um, and that's and the problem is in part a lot of hard thinking that needed to happen ramping up to this reauthorization process hasn't happened because we didn't really get to insert ourselves into that pro the practical nuts and bolts of that of thinking about how we're going to refocus transportation because we've been sidetracked by these other issues. Now, the problem is all those problems that there was a consensus on in the transportation community, whether you were at the Natural Resources Defense Fund or whether you were at um, Environmental Defense or the Reason Foundation or even Heritage, wherever, those have not gone away. Transportation policy is at a crossroads. We are not at a point where we can simply say we're going to reauthorize the same stuff we've been doing for the last 20 years. We are at a point we need to move in fundamentally different directions. The gas tax is, I mean, from a long-term perspective, we ought to just not even have that on the radar screen because given the way technology is moving, given the way transportation is moving, it's going to disappear as a meaningful funding mechanism at the federal level in 20 years. So what are we going to do? We're going to have to um, recognize, and this is actually an important part of the themes that are in the book, and I brought a few copies of this, um, but not enough for everybody, which is good for Cato and good for Randall that we've got a good full room. But we need to recognize that our transportation travel patterns have changed in fundamental ways. 
ways that they, they're not the same as they were in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. The idea of funding based on formulas that are, can be distributed um, on, uh, with narrow criteria are really over. And in fact, if you look at some of the most important questions and the most important challenges facing our transportation networks, there are things like congestion. Congestion is a regional problem. It is not a federal problem. There's clearly a federal interest because the slower people move, the, the uh, more negative impact it has on the economy. It, makes, it reduces productivity, um, puts us at a, global dis- at a disadvantage in the global economy, all sorts of reasons, but the solutions are regional. They are not federal. The U.S. Department of Transportation is not going to be able to decide what is the best policy mix for dealing with mobility and congestion in Cincinnati, Ohio, or in Louisville, Kentucky, or in Los Angeles, or, or even Los Angeles, for that matter. Now, whether or not Los Angeles can deal with it is another issue, but that, that's sort of a separate local politics, which would, is sort of a, another element of this altogether. Um, the other thing we need to recognize is that the entire network is managed very poorly. It's, uh, it's an incredible amount of inefficiencies in the system. Now, to some extent, by going to more performance-based approaches to looking at how we allocate funds, that sort of gets to some of this. But the reality is we are not putting the right money in the right place at the right time in the right kinds of infrastructure. And that's true whether it's transit or whether it's roads, which is another reason why there was an increasingly large and, and significant consensus that we needed to move more toward a user-based approach to funding our transportation infrastructure. Because if you do that, you automatically incorporate a willingness to pay criteria into how you fund projects. So if it's user pay, and I'm, we're going beyond the gas tax here. Now we're talking about things like tolling. We're talking about things like uh, distance-based Revenue, uh, um, revenues, uh, so vehicle miles, travel fee, if you want, something like that, which actually corresponds to what you actually, the wear and tear you actually put on the road infrastructure. You can simply look at the revenues that are being generated in those priced areas, and you will know where the priorities are. And that is a crucial element that is missing out of the entire infrastructure management and investment um, decision at this point. But even though one of the things we found, certainly uh, Secretary LaHood has found out, is talking about alternative funding mechanisms, particularly when you're talking about things like tolling, um, gets you uh, in some pretty hot water uh, at this point in time. But unfortunately, these problems have not gone away. And this reauthorization process is going to be the one that sets the tone for transportation policy for the next 20 or 30 years. Probably not 50. Um, because things move too too fast these days for it to be that long. Although with politics, it can take centuries um, in some cases. So I think, but we need to start grappling with some of these issues and thinking about how we move our transportation policy funding and decision making process into a completely new framework that meets the demands of the modern economy that is globally competitive that has mobility as a core element of not only quality of life, but the economy as well. And one of the things, and again, this is a, we talk about this, Adrian Moore and I talk about this in our book, one of the things we need to grapple with is that as our society has become wealthy, we actually uh, prefer to have things move along more efficiently and faster. Mobility is actually what we call in economics a, uh, a normal good in the sense that as your income goes up, you actually demand more of it. 
So as you, and one of the reasons why automobile ownership increases as fast as it does in higher-income um, countries is because the automobile as a technology provides more mobility than the alternatives. And so that's one of the things we need. That's a reality. I mean, I'm not, this isn't ideology. I'm, I'm sort of, for a long time I was uh, d addressing this whole question that there's a car culture in the United States. I actually bought into that for a while until I started looking at the numbers and I started looking at some of the quantitative analysis. It's not. Actually, I think Americans are very pragmatic and practical about their transportation choices. If you find, you give them a technology that allows them to get from point A to point B faster and it reduces their overall cost, whether it's either in time or in income, they're going to use it. And in the vast majority of metropolitan areas in the United States, that is the technology. I mean, it, that is the, it's a technology of choice. That is a reality, as much as we may still have some scope, and I believe there is some scope to increase the potential for transit and, and particular forms of transit in particular areas. But we need to be realistic about what we're likely to achieve. The other thing that we're going to have to grapple with is that instrumental to not only funding but managing new infrastructure is going to be private capital. Um, simply, there's not as much tolerance among the public to raise taxes, whether it's a gas tax or any other tax to fund infrastructure. Private capital is going to be an essential element moving forward. And it's not only – so it's not just using user fees to identify revenue streams – to fund new infrastructure, again, whether it's transit or road-based, it's also recognizing that private capital brings a lot to the table that hasn't been recognized yet in the United States. It's been recognized in many other places in the world. In fact, we're behind the times when it comes to the use of private capital. Um, if we look, uh, whether it's China, where right, we're spending, actually, Reason Foundation, we're doing quite a bit of work in China right now, or whether it's in India or Australia or even Europe, Private capital, they've figured out ways to use private capital effectively to not only bring new money into the, into the transportation network, but also manage the infrastructure more efficiently. Um, they don't have the same big dig problems that we do here. And we have to start thinking about what is it that everybody else does right? And what is it that we might need to um, do to try and make that more efficient? Also, and uh, this, of course, will fit really well into Congressman Garrett's position, uh, we need to think very seriously about decentralizing a huge number of these decisions um, all over transportation infrastructure. It is completely uh, clear in my mind that, for example, when we're looking at mobility in terms of the average everyday mobility of people living in our metropolitan areas, that is a regional problem. It is, has to be solved by regional solutions, and it's going to be a different mix in every metropolitan area in the country. If you're in New York, transit's a huge part of it. If you're in Louisville, Kentucky, not so much. Um, bus, possibly. Rail, no. It just simply doesn't work. And again, we, there, there's, some, there's a lot of research that shows why, why different modes are going to be more efficient in different places. Finally, I think what we need to do, and, I'll have to, and I will give the floor over to Randall here because he's got great stuff coming up, is we need to more clearly identify the specific areas where federal involvement makes sense. Now, to me, that really boils down to four different areas. Uh, trade corridors and gateways. Trade corridors and gateways. Um, huge. And in fact, in many cases, the challenges can only be addressed at a federal level, not only because we're talking about international trade and commerce and interstate commerce, but because the nature of the issues themselves bubble up way beyond just the regional level. Um, freight also is an issue that really needs to be thought of 
at a national level because we're really talking about linking Boston to Los Angeles. We're not talking about helping people in Los Angeles get around more effectively, though that's part of the mix. Um, a third is facilitating interstate and interregional cooperation. Um, one of the byproducts of the federalist structure that we have, federalist government structure, we have very specific roles and responsibilities for the states. Sometimes it's hard to get states to cooperate on key transportation infrastructure. Good examples right now are, uh, are uh, bridges going over the uh, Mississippi River and the Ohio River. There are sort of, people can't quite get together on what, what is the win-win solution to that. There is a role at the federal level to facilitate that cooperation and dialogue. And then finally, we need fundamentally, and this has to start with this reauthorization, is uh, moving to a different funding mechanism, one that, in our view, at reason, is going to be more based on a distance-based funding mechanism. Vehicle miles traveled is also the way it looks. Um, that has, the reason we can't wait is because we have a lot of work to do in terms of technology and ensuring that the interface between different technologies work and so that needs to be seeded now. We need to have the pilot projects in place with this reauthorization project to make sure that by 2030, we actually have a system that's going to be able to fully fund our transportation um, network. All right, thank you very much. Thanks, Sam. Our uh, final speaker today is Randall O'Toole. Uh, Randall's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, where he uh, researches a number of issues, including urban growth, public lands, and today's topic, of course, transportation. He's written a number of books, uh, including The Vanishing Automobile and Other Urban Myths. He also uh, wrote a book published by the Cato Institute recently called The Best Laid Plants, and it's got a fantastic subtitle, which is How Government Planning Harms Your Quality of Life, Your Pocketbook, and Your Future. Tell us how you really feel, Randall. Uh, he has an uh, upcoming book called Gridlock, which looks at uh, traffic congestion and transportation issues. This will be released in, uh, in January, early January of next year. With that, I'll turn things over to Randall. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I asked to go last today, which might have been a mistake because Representative Garrett and, and Sam uh, said so many things that I wanted to say. Uh, I also... Uh, have this wonderful, I thought I was going to be able to dazzle you with my wonderful PowerPoint show, and you would overlook the fact that I was just uh, repeating things that had already been said, but my computer seems to be dying, and I'm not even sure the PowerPoint show will work. Uh, my screen is dead, uh, my, my power supply isn't working too well, and when I was trying the PowerPoint show, it wasn't going very well, but uh, I'll continue with it and see what happens, and I'll try to gloss over some of the points. Um, the, the first point I want to make is Sam talked about how there has been a consensus among all sides about many transportation issues. One issue that there's no consensus about is how much driving should people do. Americans are the most mobile people on earth. The average American last year traveled three-quarters of the way around the surface of the earth at more than 18,000 miles. That's almost twice as much as the average, that's more than twice as much as the average European, three times as much as the average Asian. And 85% of that travel is by automobile. Um, and of that 85%, uh, the interesting thing is that almost everybody in America drives uh, or has access to an automobile, somebody in their family drives, and the amount of driving is fairly even across all income levels. 
automobile travel is uh, very egalitarian. This wasn't true 100 years ago when passenger trains were the main form of inner-city travel, streetcars were the main form of urban travel. Most of that travel was conducted by a wealthy elite, not by the average person. The average American only traveled about 200 miles a year 100 years ago by train, another 200 miles a year by streetcars. That's just not very much compared to the 18,000 miles that we travel today. And the reality was a few people traveled a lot, and most people were confined to walking. You can see by 1923, the automobile had already exceeded in travel every other form of transportation combined in the United States, and today it just overwhelms everything else. Now, I say we travel twice as much as the average European, but the interesting thing is they also travel by automobile for most of their travel. 79% of European travel is by automobile. And they do have invest more in trains, they invest more in transit, they invest in high-speed rail. But when we Americans go to Europe, we mix up, we confuse these investments, which are inputs, with outputs. People in Europe don't travel that much more by train than we do. They don't travel that much more by transit than we do. Just as an example, <clears throat> Paris. Um, <clears throat> of course, they have streetcars. More than uh, about five times as many European cities have some form of rail transit as American cities. That's an input. The, you can see the number of rail cities in Europe that have rail, that, uh, the cities in Europe that have rail versus the cities in America. But the average American travels by rail transit 88 miles a year. The average European, 96 miles a year, just 12% more. That's an insignificant amount. So all that input, having five times as many cities with rail transit, leads to a mere 12% increase in uh, outputs. Of course, France, this is uh, supposed to be a high-speed train. It's finally coming. Um, France has invested just about as much per capita in its high-speed trains as we invested in our interstate highway system. Of course, our interstate highway system was self-funding. Their high-speed trains was all paid for by general taxpayers. The average resident of France, and this is true in Japan as well, rides high-speed trains less than 400 miles a year. They ride the bus as much or more. They fly within Europe or within Japan two to three times as much as they ride high-speed trains. The Japanese drive 10 times as much as they ride high-speed trains. The French drive 20 times as much as they ride high-speed trains. High-speed trains is an insignificant form of travel. It's a, a luxury good for a few people that's subsidized by everybody else, and it's a, a tech, technological star in their crown, maybe, but it's like saying we produce the best buggy whips in the world. Uh, it doesn't really mean that much when you're dealing with an obsolete form of travel. Now, the real disagreement today is uh, how much should we encourage people to travel? How much mobility should we have? The authors of this report, which was published by the Urban Land Institute last year, said there is no way that we can meet our greenhouse gas reduction targets uh, simply by relying on technology alone. We have to force people out of their cars. We have to reduce vehicle miles traveled. People talk about that casually, reducing vehicle miles traveled, as if there was no cost of doing so, as if it does not harm anybody to tell somebody they can't drive as much. 
Now, we couldn't get the audio hooked up, but that's Secretary LaHood telling the National Press Club that, yes, the goal of this administration is to coerce people out of their cars. And uh, that's a goal that I think is going to prove extremely costly. Here's a recent Reason Foundation report uh, that came out. It was published by, or written by David Hartgen of North Carolina State University. University of North Carolina. I always mix those up. University of North Carolina. Uh, and it finds that there's a strong positive relationship between mobility and productivity. In other words, if you put more people within 25 minutes of jobs or more jobs within 25 minutes of people, you will get a significant increase in productivity and worker pay and gross domestic product of that community. Now, you can just cram people in and you're saying you're putting more people in, but when you cram people in, you create more congestion. Actually, to put more people in within 25 minutes of jobs, you need to have lower densities because lower densities are less congested, and that means you will uh, actually increase your productivity. Uh, lower densities also mean lower, more, lower cost housing, more affordable housing. This is a four-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath house on a quarter acre in Houston. It sold for $159,000 two years ago. Right now, it's supposed to be worth about $170,000. Where can you find a four-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath house on a quarter-acre lot in Washington, in New York, in California, in any places that are trying to get people out of their car by, developing, by having compact development, by having higher-density housing? It's just not possible. So when we try to have more compact development, in order to get people out of their cars, we're making housing unaffordable to a large number of people. We make consumer goods unaffordable, both because it's harder to get the consumer goods to the market and because once you get them to the market, there's limited competition. If you can't travel as much, you're not going to be able to access as many stores, and the stores, knowing that, are going to charge you more. Even if we could get people out of their cars, it wouldn't mean they'd be going on to transit. We've already seen the numbers from Europe that shows that transit and trains do not come close to making up for the reduction in driving that they have, and the reason why they drive less is because gas prices are so high because of taxes. But even if we could get people out of their cars and on a transit, it would not necessarily save energy or be good for greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, automobile energy consumption per mile has dr dramatically declined in the last 30 to 40 years. Transit's going the other way because we insist on building, sending buses and building rail lines into middle-class neighborhoods where people have three cars in every garage, and so we have empty trains. Our average transit vehicle in this country is one-sixth full. It's five-sixths empty. People talk about how the average car has only 1.6 people in it and how that's a waste when you've got a car that can hold five, four or five people. But actually, the average car has higher occupancies per seat than the average transit vehicle. And that means transit vehicles consume a lot of energy and they emit a lot of greenhouse gases. Even if it's electric transit, such as the Washington, D.C. transit, 100% of which energy comes from the burning of fossil fuels, you are getting a lot of greenhouse gases. Washington Metro Rail generates more greenhouse gases per passenger mile than the average car, almost as much as the average SUV. <clears throat> energy consumption by transit mode is uh, uh, buses are about the same as SUVs, light trucks. Light rail is about the same as cars. Subway's a little better, but some cars, like the Toyota Prius, are a lot better than subways 
They're better than almost any transit vehicle, uh, any public transit vehicle there is. And uh, cars are getting better continuously by about 1% to 2% per year. Transit is getting worse. Uh, by 2025, uh, the average car on the road, if, if the auto manufacturers meet the Obama fuel economy standards, the average car on the road is going to be more fuel efficient than any transit system in America. And it'll probably be generating less greenhouse gases than any transit system in America. That's true for intercity transportation as well. The average automobile in intercity transportation actually has more occupants in it. It has about 2.4 occupants instead of 1.6. So it's that much more energy efficient, that much more greenhouse friendly. And uh, the average automobile in intercity traffic is more efficient than Amtrak. Uh, and by 2025, it's going to be a lot more efficient than Amtrak. The only thing more efficient than automobiles is intercity buses. Why? Because intercity buses are privately operated. The bus companies run where people want to go, not where they want to uh, impress taxpayers. Whereas the public transit agencies run their buses and their trains to impress taxpayers rather than to serve their uh, public. So the average intercity bus is two-thirds full. The average transit bus is one-sixth full. Well, you're a lot more efficient, energy efficient when you're two-thirds full. So the solution is to promote more private operation, more operation responsive to users rather than responsive to taxpayers. You never hear the advocates of getting people out of their cars talk about intercity buses. I figure it's because they're not subsidized, and so there isn't really that much they can do about them. But Bolt and Megabus, which have their <coughs> bus station just a couple blocks from the Cato office, uh, it's just two of 14 companies operating between Boston and Washington. They carry more passengers per year than Amtrak in the same corridor. They carry three times as many passengers as Amtrak high-speed trains, uh, and they charge typically $15 to $20 to get from here to Washington. Amtrak's high-speed Asila is $99. Well, when we built the interstate highway system, uh, Representative Garrett talked about how we've lost focus since completing the interstate highway system. When we built it, we dedicated the gas tax, federal gas tax, to those highways, and we distributed it based on a strict formula that was depended on a population, land area, and road miles in each state. So each state knew how much they were going to get. They didn't have any incentives to build the most expensive roads possible because if they did, they would have less money to do other things. So their incentive tended to be to be fairly efficient. If they wanted to build really expensive roads, like Colorado built a Interstate 70 through the Rocky Mountains, uh, was the most expensive interstate highway built, it took them a long time. They were almost the last high interstate highway built. Oregon built its uh, roads more efficiently. We were the first state, my home state of Oregon, was the first state to get done building its share of the interstate highway system. In 1973, we started diluting the uh, uh, interstate highway system, the, the gas tax. Uh, Congress said that if a state or a city wanted to uh, cancel a proposed interstate highway in the city, they could take the money and use it on transit, but they could only use it for capital improvements. And so the mayor of Portland, I lived in Portland at the time, 
came up with the idea. He said, well, if we buy buses, we aren't going to have enough money to run the buses. They canceled one freeway, freed up enough money to double the bus fleet. But they didn't have any money to run the buses. So he said, let's build a light rail line. Why? Because it's expensive. It'll cost a lot of money. It'll consume all of those capital funds that we were going to spend on an interstate freeway. So they chose light rail not because it was efficient, but because it was a waste of money. That was the reason why, and that's why light rail has become the mode of choice for uh, the government in Portland. It's not the mode of choice for transit riders, but for the government. And then in 1983, 1982, Congress said, we want to raise the gas tax. But to raise the gas tax four cents for highways, they had to agree to also raise it one penny for mass transit. Because transit advocates said, we want our share of this money. Uh, We want to take money away from the people who are using the highways and put it into transit, even though transit only carries about 1.5% of all travel at that time. Since then, it's declined to about 1% of all travel. Since then, every increase in the gas tax has followed this formula. 20% of the increase has gone to transit. So Congress is sending a message, and that message is user fees are not as important anymore. Also, uh, a lot of the transit money was put into an open bucket. This open bucket had the following rule. The cities that came up with the wackiest, most expensive transit proposals got the most money. And the cities that came up with efficient transit systems got the least money. So when you've got an open bucket, uh, suddenly everybody wants to have light rail. Not because it's efficient, but because it wastes money. Portland, for example, was going to build a, a light rail line through these hills that you see behind here. It was going to cost a quarter of a million dollars. But since they had an open bucket, they decided to build a giant tunnel through the hills that raised the price to a billion dollars. It almost quadrupled the price of the light rail. It gained no new riders, not a single new rider, because they built that tunnel, but uh, they quadrupled the price. They got more federal dollars. Uh, Actually, Portland has the second highest per capita rate of capturing federal transit dollars uh, of any city in the country. Uh, After New York, it's like, here's New York, here's Portland, and the next one is way down there because they're throwing so much money at transit. Congress has added more and more pots to the uh, transportation bill. Instead of saying, here's money for transit, here's money for highways, we've got money for Appalachian development. We've got money for uh, recreation trails. We've got money for buses. We've got money for rails. We've got money for uh, legacy systems. We've got all kinds of pots. Each of these pots sends another message. Transportation, federal transportation funding is going to be determined politically not if not based on efficiency grounds, but by politics. And then we've got earmarks. 1982 was also the first year that there was any earmarks in the transportation bill, just 10. And that went up steadily, uh, exponentially actually, until there was uh, 6,373 in the, 19, in the 2005 bill. Uh, and who knows how much there's going to be in the next bill. Again, the message is transportation is no longer something we regard as something that needs to be done efficiently. It's something that we do for political reasons. And so the whole idea of transportation becomes uh, who's got the political muscle, who's got the power. Well, what do you get when you get political transportation? 
Well, one thing is that Congress likes ribbons, not brooms. They like cutting ribbons for new capital projects. They don't like providing maintenance funding to maintain those projects. And so this is a sign I saw today in the Metro Center. It says, uh, the air conditioning isn't working. We're, we're fixing it. Well, I was here in June. I don't, I don't live here, by the way. I only come here and ride my bicycle and ride trains every once in a while. Uh, I was here in June, and the air conditioning wasn't working then either. Uh, that's what happens when you have a political transit system. And we've got this wonderful subway system here, and yet we see, uh, we see the uh, rails breaking, we see accidents, we see all kinds of problems because there's not enough money to maintain it. We have enormous congestion. Congestion has quintupled since 1982, which is the year that these earmarks and, and diversions started happening. Uh, we need to get back to a user pay system, toll roads or whatever. So I have some simple proposals. Number one, put everything in a big pot, not a lot of little pots. Doesn't matter whether they spend it on transit, highways, whatever. Put it in a big pot, but distribute the pot this way. 45% based on land area, based on population of each state. 5% based on the land area of each state, and 50% based on the user fees state and local areas collect from transportation users. A transit fare that goes to transit is a user fee. A transit fare that goes to a bike path is not a user fee. A gas tax or a toll that goes to highways is a user fee. A gas tax or a toll that goes to transit or bike paths is not a user fee. As long as we understand what user fees is, then distribute the money this way, and it turns out this particular formula will initially result in a distribution that's not very far from the current distribution of, uh, of federal transportation dollars. But you'll end up having a race to the top. You'll end up having states and cities say, well, we better go out and collect more user fees so we can get more federal dollars. That'll put their transportation system on more of a user fee basis with all the benefits that Sam talked about of tying users together with uh, transportation uh, uh, <coughs> agencies and, and producers. If we're worried about greenhouse gases, if we're worried about toxic air pollution or anything else, Congress should also require that uh, the solutions to these problems be cost efficient. Uh, we can build a light rail line, and if you power that light rail from hydroelectricity, you might be able to reduce greenhouse gases a little bit but at a cost of about $10,000 per ton of CO2 abated. Whereas if you signalize traffic, if you coordinate traffic signals, it costs about $10 a ton of CO2 abated. So for every ton you abate with uh, light rail, you're losing 999 tons that you could have abated if you had done efficient things like traffic signal coordination. So it's not enough, however, to require that trans that investments be cost effective. The state of Utah required that the Salt Lake City metropolitan area write its plan cost effectively, and a state auditor found that they had cooked the books to make politically favored projects appear cost effective, and when this was revealed to the public, the, the metropolitan planning organization said, well, it's all right, we're going to do those projects anyway, whether they're cost effective or not. So they did. So in addition, I propose that there be a, that Congress create a citizens enforcement process where anybody could appeal a plan to the Secretary of Transportation and say, 
this plan is not cost effective. We want you to make our city or our state go back and do it over again. It's like uh, appeals processes that Congress has created for many other things, mostly environmental, but they've never created one requiring cost effectiveness for uh, the the expenditure of federal funds. Now, these ideas are discussed along with several other ideas in this report, which you should have a copy of. At least there are copies available. Uh, just was an, came out two days ago. And if you uh, uh, want more information, you can go to the Cato.org website or my blog, which is at ti.org. Uh, and uh, there's my email address if you have any questions after today. Thanks, John.